by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today, you're going to hear about a debate that's not necessarily new, but one that has definitely picked up traction in more recent years. Should I stop eating meat and become a vegan or vegetarian? Now, both sides of the fence here, meat eaters and non-meat eaters, can get quite passionate when it comes to the food you should or shouldn't be eating. And that's no surprise, because food is hugely important to us, not only because we need food and nutrients to survive and stay healthy, but also because food can carry huge cultural and personal significance. But today we're going to delve deeper into this debate and look at not just the food itself, but how we grow the food we need to survive. And that's both plant and crop agriculture and grazing for meat. Today you'll hear a conversation between Xavier Mays from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Think Sustainability's Liat Samaglu, where they try to untangle the deeply embedded relationship that we as humans have with the food we love. It's important to really consider, I guess, what sustainable means um, when we talk about agriculture in general. So it's really important to remember that any kind of human activity, and in particular growing food, um, is going to have some form of impact on the planet. So you can't avoid that, whether it's a vegan diet or whether it's a, a really heavy average Australian or average American diet, heavy in meat. But when you look at it, start to look at it in more detail, you see that the industry has started addressing the environmental impacts. And I think particularly the Australian industry has been really responsive and really prides itself on having a clean green image, um, particularly when it's exporting meat. But it's often down to quite clever marketing. And when you start to look at the studies that are coming out, looking at how to address environmental impacts of producing meat and other animal products like dairy and eggs, that technological changes or changes to the to the way that the industry operates can only really ever achieve something like a 20% or a 25% reduction in just, say, greenhouse gas emissions if we're looking at climate change. It's never going to have a greater impact than that. It's kind of an analogy uh, I think is really helpful is to, to think of clean coal. So the coal industry is, you know, really putting in a lot of money and the Australian government is trying to put in a lot of money into cleaning up coal-fired power stations, capturing that coal and uh, capturing the carbon emissions and putting it back into the ground. But it's proving to be very expensive and will never really actually address the the fundamental problem of human impact on climate change. Um, And I think the same can be said of the the meat industry. Because the methane is is quite an issue as well, right? It is, yeah. So the agriculture, well, the animal agriculture industry is the, the largest generator of methane emissions worldwide. Uh, when you look at it across the board, it is significant. And methane's really important, actually, and we don't really talk about methane too much compared to CO2. So CO2 has a lifespan in the, in the atmosphere of over 100 years. Methane has a, a shorter lifespan mm-hmm. of around 20 or 30 years, um, but it is incredibly potent compared to CO2. So it's actually, right now, having a much larger effect 
what is it affecting? Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it acts just the same as CO2 in the atmosphere. So it's providing a dampening effect on solar radiation being able to reflect back out of the atmosphere. So it's contributing... Like almost like a cloud, Exactly, yeah. So that kind of greenhouse effect. So it's trapping more heat. So it's having a quite powerful effect there. It won't last in the atmosphere, you know, past this century into mm. the into the next century. But when we look at what the global community is trying to do right now in bringing down greenhouse gas emissions below two degrees to try to avoid really, really uh, dangerous tipping events in the climate cycle that could lead to really catastrophic changes. The next few decades, in particular this decade that we're in right now, is incredibly important. And so when we look at methane, because it has such a powerful effect right now, it's quite important to actually address that Mm. while also addressing CO2 emissions. Our agricultural practices in Australia have been adopted from the European model. You know, during white settlement, we imported livestock to work our land. I guess it's had a devastating effect on things like topsoil. Are we just not farming properly for the Australian environment? It's actually a case around the world. I mean, mm. even though those kind of animals have existed on, you know, the European continent for a lot longer than here in Australia, they're still having the same kinds of impacts on the soil, uh, eroding the soil worldwide. and compacting it. Yeah, worldwide, exactly. So raising livestock is the number one cause of soil erosion, uh, is the number one cause of, of actually impacting on that topsoil and having a breakdown. Um, now there's particular camps that are starting to explore alternative methods of farming animals like intensive rotational grazing Uh Um, and so and that's quite popular because it's a new method that's that basically involves rather than having an incredibly wide open paddock or in Australia we've got you know acres and acres and acres of of land where cattle can roam they have cattle in relatively confined spaces and then rotate them around a particular area to help to spread the impact on that overall land and proponents of that have been arguing that it can actually help address climate change and actually improve the soil over time but actual peer-reviewed evidence has not found that to any degree Um, and it actually shows that rotational intensive rotational grazing um, still has just as much of a an impact on the environment as conventional grazing why is topsoil erosion bad well when you think about it the Topsoil that is one of the key ingredients for how we can continue to exist mm. uh, on the planet. It's like water. I remember hearing if you, you were out in space and you were looking at the planet as a you know the size of a cricket ball, the topsoil would be such an incredibly thin layer on that, on that cricket ball, but it's absolutely pivotal for us to be able to continue to grow the kinds of food that we need. To be uh, fair, degrading topsoil occurs with any kind of agricultural activity that really uh, is focused on growing crops or growing uh, livestock as fast as possible and then doing it again and doing it again and doing it again. So we've got these problems in monoculture um, plantations, whether it's soy or corn or or any other kind of plants. So I think it's important for us to, to look at how we grow food in a really holistic way, whether it's meat or whether it's plants, and say... What impact are we having on the environment around us that we that supports us to to live in the way that we do? So, can kangaroo consumption be seen as a bit more of an alternative, sustainable solution? Yeah, look, I think it's um, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it's definitely a lower impact um, compared to cattle um, because kangaroos are, are herbivores and they they emit far less methane. Um, they have a, a lighter footprint on the soil. Um, 
because of their physiology. But there are lots of questions about the growing uh, interest in the kangaroo industry uh, that particularly my colleagues at the Institute for Sustainable Futures uh, at UTS are looking into that the industry really wants to grow and to make much more of a commercial activity out of farming and shooting kangaroos, particularly for an export market. The economics of it don't appear to stack up. It, it seems like the industry uh, saying that there's lots of jobs involved and that it produces a lot of economic activity, but the costs of the industry aren't being factored into that at the moment. So oh. particularly the cost of tourism. We have a problem here in Australia with the really well-detailed and uh, accurate research on um, and numbers on kangaroos. So the industry says, look, there's an overabundance of kangaroos in this particular area. We can go in and we can shoot them and we can use their meat and their skins and things like that for products and, um, and make that a sustainable industry. And there's really actually a lot of fundamental questions about whether those numbers are actually correct. So we yeah. could see in the future a lot of harm to the actual kangaroo as a species. It doesn't sound very organised either. Like it's actually farming. <laughs> it's just like... Go over there now. There's lots of kangaroos yeah. over there. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's attractive to a lot of people because it doesn't involve really intensive ways of farming animals. And so, mm. you know, a lot of people are very concerned about the welfare of animals that are farmed. So, you know, some solutions of coming up with better environmental impacts or better reductions in greenhouse gases is, is to say, look, we can really intensively farm animals and we'll put them in a, a really confined area and we can get the maximum amount of protein out of out of them. Um but regardless of the welfare of that animal um, and regardless of the pollution that it causes. But, but hey, it, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So I think whenever we look at food, we Even need to look at it in a holistic. Yeah. Exactly. Think Sustainability will be back after this. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. We're going to jump straight back into our conversation between Xavier Mays from the University of Technology Sydney's Institute for Sustainable Futures and Leah Samaglou. I guess if we all became vegans, the world, or even if you just look at Australia, mm. farming practices would need to change drastically and then more land would need to be used to create, you know, crops. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I think that's, uh, that's an area that's really ripe for more research. It's something that's not well understood. In a recent study that came out last year, it looked at the carrying capacity of the US basically to produce the amount of food. And they wanted to understand how much food could you produce on different diets. So they, they examined 10 different diets and one of them was a vegan diet. And they actually found that with the parameters that they set for different land uses, that vegan diet was actually less ideal than just, say, some omnivore diets or some diets that included meat on, that included dairy and eggs. And that was because they excluded perennial land or perennial cropland um, or grazing land that's currently just used for livestock and traditionally is only understood to really support livestock as a a food source and not plant-based crops. But 
that's never really been tested before. And I think there's a lot of a lot of evidence to show that if we did shift diets in the ways that that experts around the world are saying that we have to to address climate change uh, and to address all the other environmental problems that we have with the animal agriculture industry, that we would see a lot of innovation around that land that's made available. Um, Like a really important stat is that a world without animal agriculture, a world that is entirely vegan, and that is thinking way outside the box, Mm -hmm. um, we're nowhere near that at the moment, would mean that we would actually require 21% less cropland than we have that we use at the moment. So that's roughly the size of India. So we could provide food for the entire world and we would actually require less land than we use at the moment. And that's because we produce an incredible amount of plants that get directly fed to, to livestock um, to then come through to us. Yeah. And it's a very inefficient process. 91% of deforestation in the Amazon is because of land clearing for for livestock. Um, so I think when we start to think about what's possible, a lot of opportunities open up. I think Australia is a bit more of an anomaly than the rest of the world. But on that, when you were talking about rainforest clearing for farming, I mean, you could argue that the same thing is happening, I guess, in <clears throat> places like Mexico. Uh, farmers are going into rainforest mm. to grow more avocados because mm. there's a huge demand mm. as well. I mean, that's just one example mm. in the world. Yep. How do you see that sort of thing, you know, the the rise of sort of those fad foods mm. and superfoods mm. and, and how that's affecting the environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really important question to ask. Um, the I mean, Veganism and, or, and plant-based diets have become incredibly popular. Um, they have become a fashion. And that's great to see in one sense because it means that there isn't that much older view of veganism being the hair shirt and the you know you're you're losing out if you if you start to reduce your meat or you you take meat and dairy and eggs out of the equation we're seeing a lot of restaurants here in sydney turn completely vegan and still have lines out the door and people are are much more interested in it so i think there's a lot to be celebrated by that and i think that people's opinions are changing about that but we always need to look at the impact of the food we grow. And definitely when things change, especially in the market, when there's more market demand for a particular product and it shoots through the roof, that's obviously going to have consequences for an industry that's only been used to producing a particular mm. uh, product for a while. But I think a lot of the time there's a there's a confirmation bias in, in a lot of the reporting around to say, you know, quinoa being grown in Bolivia or avocados in Mexico, like you were saying, where people are looking to say, looking to be able to have some reason to say, I don't want to consider this. I don't want to consider cutting meat or cutting dairy or eggs out of my diet because because that's what I'm used to and it's, it's unknown for me. Um, so I think when you start to look at the, the issues that they're having in South America around quinoa, it's actually overall providing a, a real economic benefit and it's really supporting um, communities to be much more self-sufficient in terms of their income and to be able to raise out of poverty. But quinoa was established as a local crop and has always supported the local community in being a food source, but certain farmers were choosing to export the crop because they could get better returns than, than say, selling in their community. So yep. um, we need to always look at the, the balance and, and to make sure that people aren't being impacted in that way. And with that growing crops overseas, uh, food miles is another mm. massive impact on the environment we can get our oranges from california (laughs) or cherries even in the middle of winter here you know sometimes supermarkets stock them or garlic from china Mm. i mean 
what role does Food Miles play, like, I guess, in this whole debate? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, Food Miles is, um, is definitely significant in terms of the, the energy used um, uh, as part of the production process uh, for food. But it, it actually is relatively insignificant when you look at the, the overall greenhouse gas emissions, uh, just say for... Really? Um, yeah, for beef. Um, it's completely dwarfed. There are climate impacts yeah. all along the food chain. Yeah. Transportation uh, makes up a part of that. But uh, I think in the future we're going to see a lot of changes in, in transportation. Electrification is becoming very, very popular. Biofuels are controversial but are going to be becoming more and more widespread. So as the world starts to address climate change and and meet the targets that they set in Paris and continue to do that and continue look, to look for, for new innovative ways of, of safeguarding the planet, I think we're going to see less of an impact on greenhouse emissions from transport, but we're still going to have the food sector mm. that if we're going to continue with the trends that are the way it is with countries like China and Brazil and other countries starting to become much more middle class and, and start to look to Western diets as ways to reaffirm their status, that means that meat is going to continue to be very much in demand and so is dairy and so are eggs. So that's going to grow you know, up to 2050 in a really large way. I think meat is, is predicted to grow by about 70% um, for what it is now. So we're, that means more land that's, mm. that's cut down for growing crops to feed animals and it means obviously more land for those animals to actually be raised on. It's a very grim forecast. <laughs> yeah, look, it's 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 um it's like a lot of forecasts when you start to examine what we're doing to the environment at the moment. But um, it's really important to focus on the positives. So, other studies that have come out of Oxford, for instance, um, really well respected study that that found a widespread adoption of a vegan diet could avoid more than eight million deaths by 2050. So, purely from um, from improved health. Yeah. And if that was to happen. If you look at it from a climate perspective, this Oxford study also looked at climate change and said, okay, if the international countries that have signed up to the Paris Accord to reduce emissions by 2050 and keep global warming to two degrees, that's going to happen mainly in the energy and the transportation sector. The food sector will still make up, would actually make up half of all the world's emissions at that point. Um, it'll become a much larger part of the picture. But if the world adopted a vegan diet, that would cut those emissions by 70%. It would have a drastic effect. So I think what we're, we're going to start to see is more of an emphasis on reducing meat, reducing dairy and eggs, and then opportunities for plant-based diets will just continue to grow. We've got so much uh, of Silicon Valley is focused on alternative meats. Um, <laughs> and like I said, so many restaurants in Sydney are, are seeing the opportunities with going vegan and they're getting really great response. So, What's your personal take on it then, Xavier? What can we do? Do we have to go full vegan or could we incorporate a bit of meat and dairy into our diets? Like, as they say, flexitarian. Mm. Should we be eating seasonably? What's your take on it? I think... Fundamentally, I think we need to be more informed about how our food's produced and be really engaged with that and then start to make our own choices. I wouldn't ask anyone to go vegan or to go vegetarian or to adopt any kind of diet. Um, I think that that's a personal choice. But I think people need to be informed and to not just assume that the steak that's landing on their plate or the kangaroo steak that's landing on their plate mm. is sustainable and they can feel good about that um, because they've seen some marketing about it. We really do need to 
to look at how much meat we're eating and how much dairy and eggs we're eating and start to explore some of the more exciting opportunities with plant-based diets. But food is food is incredibly personal. Food is, has so much culture and, and, um, and social expectations attached to it that I think it's uh, everyone has a unique personal journey. But I did some research recently with a colleague of mine at, at the Institute for Sustainable Futures, uh, Judith Friedlander, and we looked at the popularity of... Um, meat reduction campaigns like Meat Free Week and Meat Free Mondays. Um, and we, we surveyed people who were doing that. And it was a really broad cross-section of the community that were actually getting involved. One was a dad who, who his daughter was vegan and, and he wanted to learn more about it and actually you know just start to go, okay, well, what does this actually mean? And I think through the course of it, people join for different reasons, but they start to understand the multiple factors, the multiple benefits of really reducing meat and other animal products out of their diet. So, you know, people that joined for health reasons that were like, you know, I've seen the latest bodybuilder and he's vegan. I want to kind of explore that and be healthy but still be able to to put on a ton of muscle. Um, But then they start to understand the environmental impacts too. Uh, So it's really about being informed and being able to make those choices and know that you're making the right choices for yourself. Xavier Mays from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Leah Samaglou. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. We're also on SoundCloud and iTunes. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.